Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krauss explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Most of our shows focus on topics about building or protecting our estates, but in this season of giving, I thought I would do a show on giving back. And so I invited one of my really good friends, Rochelle Motzinger, to talk about her experiences with medical missions. I've worked with her for about 11 years and can't even count the number of times that she has traveled abroad to go help some of those people in need. So welcome to the show, Rochelle. Hi, Tammy. So let's start by just talking about some of the places you've been on these missions. Sure. We frequently go to Jamaica, to a deaf village there, also Haiti and Nicaragua. Um, We're coming up on a trip to Southeast Asia. That sounds fascinating. I assume when you get there, you don't have all of the equipment and all of the medicines. And so can you maybe tell us a story about how you MacGyvered your way out of a situation and, you know, some things that sometimes you come across that you have to deal with? Sure. It's true that you definitely never seem to have exactly what you need, but sometimes you do. I have, I found a program actually by searching online that allows providers to take prescription medications to other countries. You can, you have to pay for them, or at least sometimes they're deeply discounted and sometimes you can get suture supplies and things. So you just kind of have to see what they have available and purchase that stuff and take it with you. And so we don't always have what we need, but we're able to sometimes get by. One time in Haiti, this little girl came with her dad. She came all the way from City Soleil, which is actually the most dangerous city in the Western Hemisphere. They had to leave to walk there. And they had to leave in the darkness of the early morning because it's so dangerous to be outside of your home with all of the game activity and just the instability there. And so they got there before clinic even opened. They were waiting to be seen. And when they came in, the little girl was just listless and so weak. She could hardly hold her head up. And, you know, in my heart, I just thought, oh, my gosh, it's one of those times where the discrepancy between what our kids get here and what they get there just broke my heart because I thought in America, she would get admitted to the hospital. She's so sick. She would get labs, you know, full workup and hydration. We didn't have anything like that. And you have to pay for it before you even get the service. And he didn't have the money. And I examined her as one of my friends held her and she had thrush. Obviously you start worrying about things like HIV or what else is going on, but just there, she was so malnutrition. She could barely stand on the scale. Her weight was so low for her age. And so we didn't have nice statin swish and swallow. So we found a way to crush up some dicucan and give her a weight-based dose that her dad could do. We showed him how to do it and gave him little cups and supplies, tongue depressor to squish it. And sent them out with some bottles of water because frequently they have to buy what they need day by day. And so if you say, are you drinking a lot of water? They'll say, yeah, because a lot was half of their wages for the day. But really, that isn't enough water that they actually need. And so we sent them with some fresh water and some Pedialyte packets to 
in the water for her. And gosh, it's a heavy day. I just remember thinking, I, I just don't want her to be another childhood mortality statistic there in Haiti. And we asked them to come back the next day, which was a huge stretch because again, they're going to have to walk from city so late for hours. And when they came back. I did not even recognize that it was that little girl. She, it was just like God performed a miracle overnight with just what little we had. That dad did his best. And <clears throat> when she came back the next day, she was standing up on her own and smiling and she just looked like a different child. So it was really cool. Oh my gosh. Thanks. You kind of touched on that you've spent some time at orphanages and things. And I seem to remember this picture that you posted on Facebook of this little boy and it was obvious that you just meant the world to him. I mean, he was just holding on to you for dear life. Can you tell us about that little boy? Yes. That little boy's name is Jacob. He lives at a special needs orphanage in Haiti. And he came into their care when some missionaries were arriving to work for the day. And they just found him sitting alone outside the gates. And so they don't actually know his story and they don't actually know how old he is, but it looks like he is blind and even Jacob. And he learned his name really quickly. And it looks like he, he probably was carried around as long as his family could because you don't hold Jacob. He holds you. <laughs> and so like you, we just take turns holding him and I hog him as much as I can when I'm there. I just... As soon as you say, hi, Jacob, he'll just reach his arms out to you and just cling to you. You can be hands-free sometimes doing all your other things that you're doing, and Jacob just holds you. Oh, I would think after you spend that time with those children there that you would want to bring them all home with you. It would be so hard to leave them. Yes. As you know, we are actually in process. We're trying to adopt from Haiti, but it's a very long process. We've been going for four years now and we haven't even gotten a referral, but it's still just, it's so life-giving to go spend time with the kids there. You just, they don't have what they need. You know, they don't even just have a mom to hold them. They don't always get three meals a day. The nannies there do the best that they can, but it's not a big priority in the country sometimes for life of the kids and what they need. And so when you're there and you can just spend an entire day holding one child, it's just worth it. You know, and I told you about how, you know, anything we do, we bring bubble guns or we bring sidewalk chalk or stuffed animals and just, it's really not about things that we bring them, but it's our presence. And just, for that day, what they need from a mom or a dad that they do not have, just time and loving on them. It's so great. That's yeah. amazing. I know, I mean, beyond the medical side of these missions, you've brought your whole family down there. You've kind of talked to me a little bit about what your husband Chris has done. And I think the children, your own children benefit so much out of this. Can you talk about that side of the mission? Yeah. I feel very strongly that we all should be doing our part. And so my kids hear me talk about it. And so I definitely feel uh, that they need to be on mission too and see what it's like. You know, there's even times where I make dinner and, you know, they're like, ew, mom, can I have something else? And so I would say, well, what do you think a little boy in Haiti would say if his mom made him dinner? And <laughs> We don't really get it until they see it. And then when I say that or say that to my daughter, you know, what do you think a little girl in Haiti would say if her mom made spaghetti? 
she would say thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. That's a good lesson. <laughs> but, you know, just it's hard for even adults to imagine what our neighbors in other countries are living like or what they're doing, how they're surviving. And so you if you see it yourself and you have you give it a name, you get those little orphans, little maids, you know their names, you know what they like to do. Um it means so much more. You know, when you think of a hungry person or a suffering person and you know who it is, that changes your heart forever. Has that kind of helped you reset emotionally, like back in the States when you're doing your own job? Yeah. I didn't know when I was starting to mission what it would do for my life. You know, I actually kind of came to a hard point in my own career. I was doing what I loved, but I had experienced a deep betrayal by a close friend and I was just grinding. You know, you're grinding for the RVUs and trying to do the right things for patients and knowing in the back of your mind that they could get a survey about you or that, you know, someone could be watching or are you going to make enough RVUs for your bonus? And um, I really got to a place where I was doing what I loved, but I was convicted that I was doing it for the wrong reason. So being able to go to another country and love on people there and do what I love for other people there really did reset me as far as getting to a place where I was crispy and burnt out from doing things here, but really to live a life worthy of the calling that I've received and recognizing that i been given an opportunity for education, to live in a first world, to work in a great hospital, to make great money. And I did not get all those opportunities just so that I could save them for myself and to make more money for myself and to, you know, all that stuff is fine. All the luxuries we have here, that's fine. And making sure that we take care of our folks financially and prepare for the future, but also just resetting and knowing what I'm capable of and persevering through when I'm just loving on people for no other reason, but that's what they need in the time. That changed my life and completely refocused my career there. I can imagine. Now you had written a piece about one of your mission trips and an experience that just really touched you to the core. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. We go to a hospital there. We're usually not allowed to go into the sick room. And this is a hospital. Um, it's, a, it's called Sisters in Haiti, and it's ran by nuns. And so they don't allow cell phones and things. But sometimes when we go, it's kind of, you know, we take photos and we do things where people don't mean to do it, but it is very disrespectful and not very thoughtful of someone who's so sick so ill, alone, suffering, just to take a photo and say, look what I saw, you know? And so this place, everything is stripped away. You just walk in and your cell phones are put away. And they usually don't even allow us into the sick area of the hospital because it's just, there's so much going on and they're busy. And this time they let us in. And so instantly I saw this little bitty skinny baby with an IV and my friend was holding him and I just was like drawn to him. She handed him over to me and he was just a skeleton. I've never seen anything like this. His skin just 
sagged from his bones. I didn't even know if it was a boy or girl. He had absolutely no fat, so his temples and his cheeks were sunken. His hair was sparse. He just almost looked like an old man, and um, he was just suffering. And it's the same thing where I think even here he's getting the absolute best care that he can, and I don't know if he's even going to make it. And so I just went into my mom mode. I kind of tried to tuck him in because he's lying limp into what a comfortable position seems like babies would like. And I kind of bounced and swayed and talked to him and made eye contact. And he kind of tried to smile and they brought me a little bottle to feed him. So I thought, okay, four ounces in the bottle, you know, that means we should probably burp at about two ounces. And I'm trying to think of all the first world things we do. And we put the bottle to his face. He, you could tell he was eager for the bottle and he wanted to drink. And so I held him and as he drank, it was just like so much effort. He was eager for the bottle, but just the effort in watching his little bitty muscles and face and slow motion swallow that he's like, I'm so hungry, but he has no energy even just to suckle. And so finally, as he tires out, I look at the bottle thinking, I wonder how much progress we've made and it's only an ounce. So I pick him up to try to burp him and, um, his tummy just starts growling and rumbling. And next thing, just a full diaper. And I think, okay, this is probably why he's here. You know, he probably is suffering from a diarrheal illness. Who knows all the things that he could have. And so now he has a dirty diaper. And I thought, okay, now he changes diaper. And there's not a diaper. So I made eye contact with one of the nurses. And she brought me a cloth diaper. And I'm looking around like for wipes. And she points to the Lysol wipes in his crib. And that's what she wants me to to clean him up with and so oh my gosh he was I think he was in some sort of an isolation you know he had his own bottle and his own Lysol wipes in his crib they didn't all have their very own and so I cleaned him up and just the sight of his skinny little femur just going all the way up to his bony pelvis not a squishy little baby bum like we're used to you know that's when I realized it was a little boy and I changed his diaper when I picked him up he like was excited. He actually smiled a little. And uh, and I never know. I just never know what happened to him. I just prayed for him and just thought, you know, every single life matters. And in that moment, that's what he needed. And when I looked around the room, it's just rows and rows of cribs, two rooms. All these babies are just lying there. Some are scared because we look different, but some are eager for attention. Some crying, you know, they're some of them, there's one nurse feeding two babies, holding two hot metal bowls with this hot forage. Babies are kind of propped up on pillows and they're like force feeding in babies that are probably shouldn't be eating from a spoon, but they can. And it's just so overwhelming. You know what? That's what it looks like. That's what they do every day. I mean, you know, just being able to be there one time help those nurses just that one time, help the babies that one time. Some of them want to play peekaboo or whatever. Man, it breaks your heart to have to leave. But hopefully I got to meet the head nun that day and she showed me some of the things that they needed, which of course we didn't have any of. But if we get to go back, you know, that just the hope of being able to bring them some and even love on them because they sacrificed their lives too to just care for these little babies and there's little toddlers and some of them are kind of running around. Some are so sick. So 
that little boy, I don't know his name, but man, he made an impact on my life. Sure. I can tell. Is I mean, you talk about the orphanage and the hospital and they have so many needs. Is that something, can you send supplies to them when you're not there on a trip? Well, not really, you know, which, because that's something that I would do. We have ministries there that we support and I'm actually in the process of trying to build from the ground up a 501c or a nonprofit so that I can mobilize things in a better, more efficient way and be able to receive people for what they're donating to our trips. But unfortunately, the mail system is corrupt. And so once things go there, whoever opens it is probably going to get it. Even getting things through customs is a trick. Sometimes we have to be really careful how we pack our things. And it depends which country you're in. You know, some have really strict rules and you have to pay money to bring things in the country. Some customs areas, you have to be very quiet and respectful. And some places it's like you tug a war. I've literally tug a war over my bag. It was a week after I had my gallbladder out and I got into a tug of war. Supposed to keep doing this, but you are not getting my bag. I'm like, I'm for it, fighting. And then you just have to like run to your vehicle. And it's funny. It's funny now. Oh my gosh. What's happening? (laughs) Fine. Fine. That's the least of your worries. But, you know, yeah, just getting things even through customs is a treat sometimes. That's crazy. You had shared a story with me before we started recording about your husband and building this kitchen um, for someone there who needed it. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. One of our ministry partners, Jono, we love so much. When we were in Haiti, he drives us around and he's our chauffeur. He takes care of a lot of things for us. And his kitchen was just in disrepair and he's actually very private. And so no one knew that. And so once that was discovered, it was like, okay, we want to see what we can do. So we had someone take pictures of this kitchen and send us measurements. Chris kind of drew up our plan. He was able to make some things like the cabinet fronts why we were here in the United States since we kind of had a short time to work on his kitchen. And Chris and some of the other team worked on his kitchen in the evenings and got it all together. It was so beautiful. The cabinets, countertops, everything, you know, fabricated by hand and just made with love. And we got some containers for him to put his food in so that the rats couldn't get to it because that was part of his problem. You have a hard time. Groceries are so expensive. And then you buy it and then it gets, you know, infested or eaten by rats. And so just able to get him some of the very simple supplies. Nothing was fancy, but man, the reveal at the end of the week with my husband there and Jono there, oh, it just was like so cool just to wait for us to say thank you, you know, and to love on him. That's some of the stuff, all kinds of construction projects that we do. There's one at the special needs orphanage where the children, they're not all special needs, but the special needs ones, in order to get them outside in the sun, they have like the little screened in porch that was in disrepair. And Chris and the team, they were able to kind of fix it up and renovate it a little bit so that the flies couldn't get on the little kids and so they could enjoy some outdoor time. And there's so many things you can do. Any gift that you have been blessed with, you can use to serve others locally or internationally, really. And so it's cool to see people using their gifts in those ways. Rochelle, you've always amazed me. I've always loved your giving spirit. And I love that you have helped so many people in so many places. So thank you for sharing that with us today. 
it really is not about me at all. Certainly for me, it's like a faith-based journey. And this is all just ordained by God, by higher his higher power. It's so cool that what we are called to do here, we can do anywhere. And that's just what I want people to know. It's just, we have been so blessed to be able to live or work here in the United States. And so we're blessed with all those things just so that we can treat ourselves. But, you know, maybe we're blessed with those things so we can bless others. And so that's what I want it to be all about. It's just loving other people, paying it forward, you know, giving back. Thank you, Rochelle, for coming on the show and sharing your experiences. I really thought it would be fun to dedicate this last show of the year to giving back. I know our jobs can be rewarding at times and just absolutely soul-crushing at others. For me, doing something outside of medicine to help others can be rewarding but also rejuvenating. I hope each of you has something that helps you reset and refresh when the world gets to be overwhelming. I also wanted to take a minute to thank each of you for following me on Financial Residency. It's because of you that Grand Rounds has been a success in its first year. And with that, 2022 is a wrap. Happy New Year to each and every one of you. I hope you'll join me again next week in 2023 for Grand Rounds.